It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Now, those words form the introduction to Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And though written in the 19th century, they could apply equally well to the church uh, of Corinth in the first century. I can imagine if you were to find the Apostle Paul at that time and to ask him, Paul, how are things going at the church in Corinth? It wouldn't be a straightforward answer. Uh, I can imagine Paul might actually say, well, when I think about the Corinthian church, I would say maybe it's been the best of times and it has been the worst of times. You see, Paul had both encouraging and challenging things to say about them. And that's important for us to bear in mind as we work our way through the letter and this passage in particular. You, You see, in various parts of the letter, we will find some very encouraging things. In this particular uh, part of the letter, we'll find many, many challenging things. But we must bear in mind that whether encouraging or challenging, whatever Paul has to say is ultimately for their good, for their maturity, for their growth in Christlikeness. And in fact, you know, when I look at this passage, it's got the feel almost of a, a doctor in his surgery with a with a patient. You've got Dr. Paul there and his patient being a Corinthian church. And like any good doctor, Paul offers off, uh, honest and accurate diagnosis of the situation. And then he outlines a, a kind of a course of treatment for them. So uh, let's begin by hearing what it is that Dr. Paul has to say to the Corinthian church. As we listen in, I'm convinced that there will be uh, some applications for us as a church. We're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through to 34, which say this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What do, do, what? do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, there are a number of things I would just like to highlight to pull out as we work our way through that section of the letter. And the first is that Dr. Paul identifies some concerning some worrying symptoms. We get it there in verse 17. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Not for the better, but for the worse. You know, we, we are often told that physical uh, activity, that exercise is a good and important thing for us. Um, I don't know if this is the case anymore, but I know a few years ago, the government uh, recommendations were for a minimum of 30 minutes of moderate exercise three times a week. So we're encouraged to engage in physical activity. However, there are some circumstances in which a, a doctor or a physio might say to you, actually, for the next six weeks, you really ought not to do any sport or any strenuous physical activity. And it begs the question, if physical exercise is so good, so important, so valuable to us, why would a health professional say you just want to put the, put, put the pause on that for a little while? Why would they stop us from doing such a thing? Well, usually in those circumstances, it is because there is some kind of issue at hand. There is an issue that needs to be dealt with or a particular part of the body that needs to be healed. And until that issue is dealt with, until the body is healed, any further strenuous activity, in fact, is going to make things worse. It's going to exacerbate the problem. And I think that is clearly what we happen to find here in Corinth. It's what the Apostle Paul finds in Corinth. You see, the, the church from the very earliest days has been committed to meeting, to gathering together, gathering together to worship God. We place a very high value on our meeting together. We believe it is important, it is valuable, it is helpful for us in terms of our growth, our maturity, um, our path towards Christ-likeness. We are committed to meeting with one another and worshipping Jesus together. And the church always has been committed right from the start. So for Paul to say that actually um, their, their gatherings may be doing more harm than good indicates that there is a significant issue in that church. There is something significantly wrong. Well, what is that issue? You know, it's something that is um, it's something that's rarely talked about and very rarely dealt with. And that issue is division. It's the issue of division, which in many senses makes it makes no sense, in fact, for the church uh, to be riddled with division. The, the, the church really is made up of, of people who have come into relationship with God, people who have been rescued, saved, uh, redeemed by Christ, brought back into relationship with God and with one another. The church is full of people who are there, not on their own merit, on their own achievements, but are there because of Christ and what he has done. We are united to Christ and united to one another. 
we are bound by the the, the fact the the reality that a a wonderful glorious miracle has happened to us if you are part of the church if you are a follower of jesus something miraculous has happened to you you've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life and though you may look and and sound and, and talk uh, differently maybe to other people in the church that reality about you about your identity is the most significant thing about you you've been saved you've been rescued because of what Christ has done so division makes no sense the equation doesn't add up for division to to exist and to persist in the church and it's interesting catching uh, the, the Paul's tone um, Andy's done a really good job in previous weeks about um, helping us reminding us about the importance of context when we are reading uh, the Bible and catching the tone of what is being said and um, as I've looked through, through a few commentaries, most theologians will indicate that it's quite likely that Paul is, is being a little bit sarcastic in his, in his initial comments here. It's as though Paul is saying, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard that there are divisions among you. Not a surprise at all. Of course there would be divisions, because if we didn't have divisions or factions, how could we tell who the first class Christians are, who the second class Christians are, who the, who the keen ones are, and who, who aren't? Yeah, absolutely, of course there are. Friends, I want to I want to say to us, it might come as a surprise that we're, we're hearing some sarcasm in the Bible, but we do find sarcasm in the Bible. And in, in this case, as in most cases, when we find uh, sarcasm in the Bible, it's usually uh, it's a way of highlighting that a particular way of thinking or acting is absolutely ridiculous. And that is exactly what Paul is doing. here. It's absolutely ridiculous. The presence of divisions, in fact, makes no sense. It doesn't add up. And he wants to drive that point home. He wants to drive it home hard. And it's a point that we also ourselves need to hear. There is no place for division because Christ has united us. So Paul has identified some concerning symptoms. He's identified the, the, the root issue, um, which is the vision. Paul now shows where he identified the issue. Now, usually at this point, a doctor would pull out some scans or some test results. Well, Paul's test result really is uh, it's the Lord's Supper. Now, don't get me wrong, division in the church in Corinth is, is rife in a whole number of areas. Um, it's actually referred to earlier on in the early chapters of the letter. But, but Paul is zeroing in on one particular aspect, and that is the Lord's Supper. And um, I'm not going to go into the, the, the kind of the fullness of the, the cultural context related to meals and related to, 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 to worship. Um, but one thing that I will say is that Christian worship from the very earliest is actually centred around a meal. Believers would gather around a meal and in that context, scripture would be uh, shared, uh, prayers would be offered, thanksgiving would be given to God for his involvement and activity in the lives of people around the table. Um, meal times are more than just like about getting something down your throat. Meal times were communal, they were spiritual, they were worshipful. So the, the, the Christian church would have gathered around a meal and it's quite likely theologians, uh, most theologians surmise that um, the, the meal would be bookended um, by bread at the beginning and wine at the end. So you have bread at the beginning, wine at the end and in the middle, all of the rest of the food and feasting and praying and singing and getting into God's word together. OK, so begin with bread, end with um, wine, the Lord's Supper. Usually... 
it's worth saying that the host would have provided bread and wine. So church gatherings, it wouldn't have happened in community centres or schools like we have now. They would have happened in homes and, and often usually the homes of wealthier members of the church. They would have provided bread and wine and other members, uh, as they had ability, would contribute um, to share with one another the rest of the meal. What is the Lord's Supper? Well, Paul talks about it through verses 23 to 26. Let's read. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We read that the Lord's Supper is a meal of bread and wine. It's a meal of bread and wine which is dripping with significance. Absolutely dripping with significance. It's a meal of bread and wine that involves remembering and proclaiming, involves looking back and looking forward. And whether you look back or you look forward, uh, you're, you're looking on something that is tremendously exciting. And that is the work of Jesus. And as we take the bread, as we take the wine, we are we remember Jesus who gave both his body and his blood for us. We remember that Jesus has existed eternally eternally been God. It was a particular point in history when he took on flesh and became like one of us. You know, you could you could walk around, you could talk to him, you could pick out his facial features, you could pick out what like the tone of his voice. A real life active walking around person. Lived like one of us, but not like one of us in the sense that he lived perfectly day in, day out, every day of his life never made any mistakes, never did anything displeasing or dishonouring to God, succeeded where each and every one of us has failed. And Jesus on the cross, he gave, willingly gave both his body and his blood for us. He, he gave himself in sacrifice in our place for the, 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 for the punishment that should rightly be on each and every one of us for our sin our wrongdoing, the ways that we've turned away from God, the ways that we've tried to put ourselves in God's position, done things our way rather than his. Well, on the cross, Jesus was taking on himself the punishment that should be on us. And he didn't just give some nice thoughts, some, some affections, he didn't send some affections our way. He gave all of himself, including his body and his blood. And when we take the bread we take and take the wine, we are reminded of that. We're reminded of the cost of our sin, a high, high cost. We're also reminded that Jesus willingly gave both for us. Later on in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The, the, the cross was a, was a horrendous, absolutely horrendous, brutal way to die. But Jesus willingly did so. Why? Because he knew that his death and his resurrection would achieve something. It would achieve restoration between us and God, between us and us. Jesus gave of himself. The, the meal, the, the remembrance meal is all about the self-giving of Christ. It's about the self-giving of Christ and the receiving of his 
church as we take the bread as we take the wine we are reminded of some things you know we all we all have need of food don't we any any meal table you, you, you sit down cafe restaurant you look around and you realize even if you don't know like 99% of the people in the room um, there is something that you hold in common and that is that all of you need to eat and drink to stay alive your bodies will not stay alive unless you eat and drink well there is a far greater reality that is reflected in the Lord's Supper and that is that each and every one of us needs to feed on Christ for our spiritual life apart from him we are dead we have no life so as we take the bread as we take the wine it's not that there's something magical happening but we are remembering rejoicing delighting in the reality that Christ has given himself for each and every one of us and that simply by trusting him by believing him by receiving him we have spiritual life we have a renewed and restored relationship with God so we remember the giving of Christ and that we as his church not just individuals but as his church are those who receive him so the meaning is about remembering it's also about proclaiming it's about proclaiming and celebrating the reality that the same Jesus who physically died and came back to life and ascended to heaven will one day return he will one day physically return and he will make uh, everything that is wrong will be made right again we proclaim that reality we proclaim the reality that his death achieved something achieved restoration uh, for us in terms of our relationship with God and one another we remember and proclaim the reality that on the cross, Jesus wasn't just rescuing, saving individual persons from their sins. No, he was gathering to himself a people, a church. And that's what we remember as we as we take the bread, as we take the wine, as we look around at others taking the bread and taking the wine, we are reminded, wow, he's not just done it for me, but he's done it for you and for you and for you and for you. he's done it for us, his people so the lord's supper is dripping with meaning and with significance but when paul looks at the situation in corinth he realizes that maybe not so much for them they have a faulty perspective a faulty understanding in fact we read verse 20 which says this when you come together it is not the lord's supper that you eat it is not the lord's supper that you eat and why is he why is he saying that well, it appears that attitudes and perspectives that were found in the wider culture were, in fact, prevalent in the church and expressed vividly, in fact, in the Lord's Supper. Now, the church in Corinth was diverse, wonderfully diverse, socially, ethnically, culturally diverse. It was diverse and yet it was divided. And those divisions, those uh, distinctions that were prevalent in the wider culture were just brought in, were just imported into the church. It's almost like you couldn't distinguish the two. So you would have had a wealthier folk, less wealthier folk. And what Paul is describing here is that some of the wealthier folk were essentially having their own individualised, privatised worship service, not really caring about or interested in anyone else there was so they were they were we talked about the shared this shared aspect of this meal and this worship so food would be shared it would it just be a be a communal experience we are gathering to worship together but what was happening was that some were going on and eating their own meal it's as though they were coming and bringing their fancy uh, MS hamper scoffing it away fancy bottles of wine scoffing it away going into a food coma whilst 
Dear brothers and sisters in Christ were looking on and going hungry. Some of those brothers and sisters in Christ uh, may have arrived a little bit later from a long work shift, tired, hungry, but excited about gathering with the people of God to worship God, to delight in God, to remember the self-giving of Christ. But they were looking on, hungry. Some of those brothers and sisters uh, may have been slaves and had very little control over if or when they could get to a church service. And what do they arrive to find? Well, there is no food for them. There is food for some who've brought their own, but there is nothing for them. And I, and I want us to understand this. This isn't just about the, whether there was enough food to go around or not. This, is, this isn't, that's not actually the issue. This is not what Paul is, is um, getting at. There is something even more significant going on. Paul says, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You see, there were some folk in the church who were basically importing the same ways of thinking and same ways of acting that were prevalent in the wider culture, just importing it into the church. And they were acting as if um, the, they were acting as if Jesus makes the same distinctions of value that everyone else does. Right. So if you've got some money in the bank, if you've got particular status, you are important, you are valuable. If you don't have money in the bank, if you don't have social status, you're not so important, you're not so valuable. You're a second class citizen. That's what they were doing. They were importing that way of thinking into the church. They were being disrespectful, humiliating brothers and sisters, essentially despising the church itself. It's as though they were hindering, in fact, hindering really the worship of others. It's like being invited to a meal. You're invited to someone's house. Someone graciously kindly invites you in and you take your seat. And then you see some other people come through the door who've been invited as well. But you, you, kind of, you kind of block them off and bar them off and kind of spread your hand over the next table setting to say, no, there's no space for you. You can't come in. That's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Well, that's kind of what was going on here, in fact. Uh, they were acting uh, as if the only worship that mattered was their own worship, their own privatised, individualised worship with God. That the worship of dear brothers and sisters was not important, was not valuable. And that was an absolute travesty. What perspective ought they to have had? They ought to have remembered that the re why are we gathering? We are gathering to remember and celebrate the self-giving of Christ. We're gathering to uh, remember and celebrate the fact that we as his people, we as his church get to receive him. You know, the, the, the Lord's Supper, the clues in the title, it, it um, assumes the presence of Christ, right? This kind of clues in the title. Um, but the actions of some were basically indicating that they, it's almost as if they believed that, that, that Christ wasn't really present at his, his own supper. They were acting as though either they didn't believe that he was there or that they basically just misunderstood, misunderstood Jesus uh, and what he is like. Paul even says that each, each one goes ahead with his own meal. In many senses, you could say each one goes ahead with his own worship. Friends, a clue is in the title, Lord's Supper. It's Christ's meal, it's Christ's table, it's Christ's church. Therefore, all things have to be done in a way that honours and glorifies and blesses him. 
for many in this church, it became about me and mine rather than about him and his. And whenever that happens, it's almost as if the church ceases to be the church. It is something else. And this is why Paul says what you're eating is not the Lord's Supper. Don't don't tag the Lord's name onto that. Because that what you're doing there is not the Lord's Supper. You're having your own thing. You're eating your own meal. You're doing your own worship, which is not pleasing or honouring to God. So what does Paul um, describe? What does Dr. What's Dr. Paul's course of treatment in this situation? You know, Paul elsewhere in the Bible describes the church as God's um, masterpiece, essentially work of art or God's workmanship. So we are God's masterpiece for the world to look in on. And what is it that the world is to see when it looks at the church? Well, it's to see um, uh, basically love for God and for love, love for neighbour. Those are, are things which ought to come out loud and clear. Love for God and love for others. But there's a particular scene in the life of the church. So this this masterpiece, it spans all that we are, all that we do as church, 24, 7, 3, 6, 5. But there was a particular scene in the life of the church that is the Lord's Supper. And why is this scene so special? Well, if I just rewind the clock a little bit to Genesis 1, the very start of the Bible, what we read is that initially um, humanity, we, we were in good relationship, perfect relationship with God. We enjoyed sweet relationship with him. Um, no barriers, no hindrances, no beef, no, no trouble at all. It was all good. And we enjoyed perfect humanity with one another. Adam and Eve got on perfectly well with one another. But there came a particular point in history where that all changed. Where they turned away from God, where that relationship with God was, was broken, was corrupted. And the relationship between them was also corrupted. And that persisted for ages and generations. But there became a particular point in time when Jesus came. The eternal Jesus took on flesh and came and lived among us. And again, he did what none of us could ever do. He did what Adam and Eve didn't do. And that was live consistently pleasing to God for all of his life. And he took on himself the punishment that should be on us. He experienced something of the separation that should rightly be on us, a separation from God. And on the cross, when he died and came back to life, he achieved something wonderful and glorious. And that is the restoration of that relationship to God. He did something miraculous, which no one else could ever do. Restored us to relationship with God. But not only that, he restored us to relationship with one another. And in the Lord's Supper, we get a bit of a picture of that reality. As we take the bread, as we take the wine, we, we, there's a picture of the reality that we have been restored to fellowship, to communion with God. We're able to like sit at a table and enjoy uh, a meal, fellowship with God himself. But not only restoration of relationship with God, restoration of relationship with one another. You see, those who have been united to Christ, those who've been uh, adopted, if you've been adopted as a son or a daughter of God, if you've come into relationship with him, um, there's actually more going on than that. If you've come into relationship with him as a son or daughter, what that means is you are therefore a brother or a sister to every other person who has come into relationship with God. You are uh, inextricably, unbreakably bound both to God and to the church forever. And that is a significant reality that is expressed in the Lord's Supper. 
And for these guys in Corinth, you know, their, their actions were essentially telling a lie about what Christ's death achieved. Telling a lie as, 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 as though it did nothing in terms of our kind of relationships with one another. As though we remain individuals in relationship with God. Telling a lie. And this is why the Lord's Supper is so important. This is why our, our gathered worship is so important. This is why, in fact, all of our interaction as church is so important. Because both with the words that we speak and with our actions, we are saying something. We're saying something about Jesus. We're saying something about Jesus. And what does this, what does this mean for us? You know, faithful Christianity involves consistency between our upward worship and our outward relating to one another. Both things are holy in God's eyes. I think we need to understand that both things are holy. When we look back to the, the Old Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament, um, God speaks through them and often says to his people, look, um, I am not interested in your worship, your so-called worship, your sacrifices, your offerings, if you are not treating uh, each other in the way that I have called you to treat one another. He's basically saying, look, you can do all of that upward stuff, but it is, if it's not reflected or consistent with how you treat one another, I am not interested. Don't bring it. Don't come to me with that. And we get similar from Jesus, in fact, in the New Testament when he talks to the Pharisees. So both are holy and important in God's sights. And, you know, our, our corporate gatherings, church is about more than what happens on a Sunday. I, I want that to be clear and understood. It's about more than what happens as we take the bread and, and, we, and we take the wine. Absolutely. Church is much broader. But actually, what we do when we gather together is a, it's a fairly good indication for how we are as a church generally. Fairly good indication, I think. And this is why Paul focuses in on the worship gathering. He focuses in on the Lord's Supper. If he's seeing division there, there is likely to be uh, division everywhere for them as a church. And I suppose the same might apply to us. So how is it that we are to worship in a worthy manner? Paul calls them to worship in a worthy manner. How are we to do so? Well, two things in particular. And the first one is to examine ourselves and the second one is to discern the body. We are to examine ourselves as we approach God to to worship and to ask the question, is this is this for him or is this for me? Am I approaching God with reverence and awe? Am I just kind of strolling in nonchalantly? Do I come recognising my need and do I truly believe him to be the one who meets my deepest need? It's important for us to examine ourselves as we approach God. So let us examine ourselves. Let us also discern the body. Now, this word body um, comes up quite a few times in this paragraph. In fact, throughout this letter, and sometimes it refers to the physical body of Christ. Sometimes it refers to his church, which is described as the, the body of Christ. And I believe here um, Paul is, is talking about discerning or being aware of being um, focused in on um, the church. This is not what was happening in Corinth. As I said, each person came and kind of did their own individual thing. It's like kind of cubicle worship. Yeah. But Paul is saying discern the body. Yes. Look up. Look to Christ. Absolutely. But look out. 
as well. And I suppose uh, in, a, in both a metaphorical and a physical sense, that is quite wise. Discern the body. I've just got five, five things that I want to say in terms of discerning the body. And the first is um, we discern the body by preparing beforehand. And what I mean by that is at least giving some thought to the reality that when I gather to worship, I am gathering with others. Giving some thought to say, well, um, maybe I should think beforehand about um, just just getting a little bit of time with such and such a person. Because I remember they had that job interview um, this week. I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to um, encourage them in some way. Preparing beforehand is a good way of discerning the body, a good way of looking beyond ourselves to others. Just remembering that, you know, our worship is both expressed in kind of what goes upward to God, but also what goes outward to his people. Prepare beforehand. Secondly, we discern the body by being present. And part of that is being physically there and present, absolutely. But but I think also in terms of our minds and our hearts, being all in together, not having the mentality that, well, there are other better things that I could be doing. I know for the rest of you, you've got nothing else to do, but I, I could be elsewhere. There's a football match going on. There's this, there's that, the other. No, being Fully present, being fully engaged when we are there is one way in which we discern the body, in which we honour one another. So thirdly, we discern the body by making room in our hearts and making room with time. The reality is on any given Sunday, um, you know, you will have had some ups and some downs in the week, right? Um, There's a lot of value in us discerning the body by making time, making room in our hearts, making room for the reality that we are going to be interacting with brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom will um, have cause and reason to celebrate the blessings of God in their life. We want to make room for that. Some of whom will be struggling and, uh, and lamenting and we want to give room to lament with them in that. It's important for us to go beyond um, our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own experiences. Worship is a shared communal endeavour. Therefore, we must make room in our hearts and make room with time for one another. Fourthly, we discern the body by praying and prophesying. I remember when I was a, um, a fairly new Christian and I remember there was a particular guy on a, on a Sunday morning who he would stand fairly close to the, to the front. And often as we were singing, singing away, he was being present, but I'd also see him looking around and I could see his lips moving. And it took me a while to realise that what he was doing is he was praying for different people in the church. He was scanning, he was looking around, he was thinking, oh, who could I pray for? Who could I, who, who could I, he was praying for people and he was listening to what God was saying, whether God would bring a prophetic word that might encourage or help that person. And I thought that was a tremendous way of discerning the body. The, the tremendous way of not just coming and doing my own personal worship thing with God, but actually, uh, you know, considering that my, my worship is reflective, uh, reflected in how I engage with one another. He was looking around. And I want to encourage us, actually. I think oftentimes we it might sound or feel a little bit weird, but I want to encourage us as God's people to occasionally look around and look at who else is there. That's OK. I want to say that's an OK thing to do. Finally, we discern the body by giving thanks. You know, as a, um, a Fishbone site team, often when we when we meet together, we usually begin by praying together. And um, because I'm not particularly original, um, we usually begin either by praying and giving thanks for different people in the site or or giving thanks for God and who he is. And we'll kind of see where that that leads us. But one of the really interesting things is as we 
pour out our hearts to God as we thank God for different people in the site. Um, we're recognising, actually, that the reason why we are thankful is because we, we've recognised um, God's significance on them. We've recognised the ways that God is, is doing things in them and working through them. And our, our thankfulness about those people is then turning into a worship and, and praise to God for who he is. And as we ponder that more, as we thank God for who he is and for what he has done, again, that stirs us outward again to pray God's blessing on different people and stirs us to think, oh, what what practically might we need to do to help or to encourage or to serve or to bless that person or those people? It's a way of discerning the body. If you look through the letters of the New Testament, you'll see uh, the the um, with the greetings, the, the kind of the initial, the first bit and the last bit of most of the letters. Paul, the Apostle Paul, spends a lot of time um, telling believers that he is thankful to God for them. He exemplifies it well. Friends, let us discern the body by giving thanks for one another. You know, we we examine and discern not out of fear. We those those final verses. Um, feel quite strong don't you talk about the 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 reality the significance of not worshipping in a worthy manner it talks about all manner of sickness and illness and even death in many many cases you know we 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 examine ourselves examine our own hearts we discern the body not out of fear but out of wisdom and obedience you know we are God's masterpiece God's church we are his masterpiece beautiful glorious and attractive. Christ has done something miraculous by his life, death and resurrection. He has created his church. He's restored us to relationship with God and with one another. Absolutely beautiful and glorious. And as the bride of Christ, we are the recipient of his love and the reflection of his glory. We don't need to fight for unity. We don't need to be scared of division. We don't need to pump or hype ourselves up. The, the, the reality is we are united in Christ. Christ's church is beautiful. It is glorious because it is his. And I believe what, what Paul would say, what I want to say to us is, look, friends, brothers and sisters, let us show the world what he has done and who we are. Let us show the world as we gather to worship. Let us show the world in all of our interaction together as church, because it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture uh, that Christ has called us to display.